<laughs> Happy Independence. We should all be thankful for the heritage that we have been given as Americans. But as I think has been clear today, already, and will be more as we go through this message, we should be more thankful for the heritage that we have received in Christ. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. Just for the sake of uh, clarity, heritage, a heritage is the good and the bad that you enjoy because of those who came before you. The good and the bad that you enjoy because of those who came before you. That's a heritage, at least the way I'm using it today. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? What were the distinctive attitudes and habits of your family and your community? Now, these are all questions that you ask when you want to learn something more about somebody. It is important to take people individually, of course, but it is also helpful to see how they have been influenced by their heritage. The choices of our ancestors have influenced us and have contributed to who we are today. I'll tell you a little story. My granddad... My mom's side grew up in Murphy, North Carolina, right near Cherokee. In World War II, he served as a cook on a naval ship. And while he was on shore leave in Australia, he met my Nana. They fell in love and eventually got married. My mom was actually born in Australia lived there for six years of her life. My granddad had to come back to the States and finish his service. And after he had finished his service, he had a serious decision to make. Would he move back to Australia? Or would he send money to my Nana and my mom to come back to the States? He chose to send, via the mail postal service, several thousand dollars cash. Could you imagine doing that? Just put it in the mail and send it to Australia. <laughs> um, and my mom, when she was six years old, and uh, my nana came across the Pacific and across the states to Canton, Ohio. What differences took place because of that decision to move. Now, my mom and my dad both grew up in Canton, Ohio. And Canton is not a large city, but it's a city, over 100,000 people. But when I was five years old, my mom and my dad chose to leave the city and bought a dilapidated 80-acre farm some 15 miles outside of Canton. I still, to this day, tell my mom and dad that that was one of the best decisions that they ever made. 
not against people growing up in the city, but I am thankful. A lot of who I am today is because of my granddad's choice to bring my nana and my mom back to the United States. I am proud to be an American, even though I love my Australian heritage. Uh, a lot of relatives over there whom I love. Um, and I've been greatly influenced by the heritage of growing up on a farm. Now, who we are is not determined by any one factor. The Bible is absolutely opposed to the idea that a person is locked into a path in which personal choices do not matter. But the importance of personal choices must be held in tension with the truth that we are very much connected with those who came before us. And we have been affected by those choices. And into, all, into those two sides of the equation, there's also another factor called God's sovereign grace. When God reaches down to save an individual, he often overrides many of their other influences in their life. This is why we call it sovereign grace. Now, the purpose of today's passage is to help the Israelites of Moses' day to understand their heritage, to understand their origins. And they are to do so in comparison with the many nations who are around them. And you should be concerned about the origins of Israel because the origins of Israel are your origins. We are members of the same family tree. Israel's heritage is our heritage. Jesus is a son of Abraham, and we are sons of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. So through two stories and a family tree, God wants us to understand our heritage. And he wants us to recognize in our heritage the working of his sovereign grace. At the same time, he wants us to walk with God by faith so that we can influence the legacy we will leave behind us to our children and grandchildren. In essence, you have opportunity through your decisions to influence the heritage that comes after you. So let's begin with the story of Noah's nakedness. Genesis 9, 18 through 28. Follow along with me in your own copies of the word. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke, 
from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Now, right off the bat, Moses gives us a hint as to his intentions for telling this story. He inserts an editorial comment into the story. Ham was the father of Canaan. Like, that is said twice in this text. He wants you to know Ham's connection with Canaan. And by Canaan, he is referring to the fourth child of Ham. But he's really referring to the whole population of Canaanites who are currently living in the promised land of which Moses and Joshua are going to go into the promised land to conquer. Moses wants the Israelites to know the origin of the Canaanites. Now, really next week, but later on, he's going to talk about the origin of the Israelites. Just as we all inherit our sinful nature from fallen Adam, that's why that was written in our order of worship today, so the specific ways in which that sinful nature is expressed follows the patterns of those who came before us. In some sense, the sins of the Canaanites find their origins in the actions of Ham. That's why it's so important that we understand the the attitude and actions of Ham, because they are connected. I have to stress as I say this, this is not fatalistic determinism. It's simply a recognition that who we are has been influenced by those who came before us. But I will tell you this it does directly go against the mindset of our current day that the only determinative force in your life is your decision. You decide who you want to be. It certainly goes against that, that absolute standing that that we're told today. Just as the descendants of Esau became known for ungodliness, so the descendants of Ham were known for ungodliness. And that origin is traced back to this story. Now, I want to take this one step further, and this is one that's easy to miss in the text. So you could say that Canaan was your ancestor, you know, if you were a Canaanite. You could say that Ham was your ancestor. But who else can you call your ancestor? Noah. Noah is your ancestor. So that's important for you to understand because even though that there will be distinctions between the Canaanites and the Israelites, they are both of one ancestor, Noah. And that is why it's important for us to understand that sin doesn't just originate in Ham or Canaan, it originates from Adam and his fallen nature and we all have it. Also, in verse 19... From these three, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So if you, you know, want to see contrasts with evolutionary theory, this one does it. 
Everyone is descended from Noah, according to the Bible. If evolution were true, and we all just descended or ascended in different ways, different places by ourselves, then we actually could say, oh, I'm a higher form of being than you are. You understand that? We do not like that idea. We all come from Noah. And as much as Noah was previously presented to us as a type of Christ, righteous and blameless, in this story we do see Noah at his worst. He is an imperfect and fallen man. But this is very important. Maybe the most important point of this text. The Bible does not glory in Noah's fallenness. It gets the point across without going into the ugly details. And oh, so much we need to learn from this in our society. We love the gory details. We glory in the ugliness of other people's sin. We take far too much pleasure in the fall of those around us. Noah's sin, verses 20 and 21, is not in making or drinking wine. His sin is becoming drunk. And in his drunken state, some way his sinfulness was uncovered. In other words, he was behaving in some way that made him look really bad. He had acted in some shameful way. You see, it's not just that he was naked. I think, you know, okay, he's in his tent. It's like saying, if I were in my bedroom and I was naked, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But he's in his tent and he's naked, but there's something shameful. But we don't know what it is, and we are not supposed to know what it is. Noah is the man who was called righteous and blameless just a chapter before. He was the man that people looked to as a standard of righteousness, and he is now exposed as a sinner like the rest of us. And the rest of this story centers around the reactions of his sons. I'll read those in 20 and 20, 22 and 23. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Ham's reaction, he goes into the tent, he sees his father's nakedness, and his first reaction is to go and tell somebody else. He sees his father's sinfulness. He takes pleasure in showing that sinfulness to his brothers. He glories in bringing down his dad. 
Now you have to understand, this is the father by which he was redeemed through the flood. He wouldn't even be alive if Noah didn't exist. What sort of twisted pleasure takes delight in the fall of his dad? And there are many theories as to other sinful actions that Ham might have committed while his dad was drunk. If you're interested, we can talk about those. If we were in a Sunday school class, we'd walk through them all. But I believe Moses wants us to focus on Ham's love of exposing to others the shame of his dad. That's the heart of the text. And Ham's attitude is in direct contrast with that of Shem and Japheth. They hear what, what Ham says, so they have some understanding of that, of that wickedness, that, that, that whatever Noah had done, his shame, they have an understanding. They hear of it from Ham, and instead of themselves glorying in it, they turn around, they put a blanket on themselves, and they walk backwards, and they drop it on their dad. And that is more than just a a literal understanding. That is symbolic. It is like they do not want to glory in and, and show off and flaunt the evil that is in their dad's heart. How many of us read this text and our immediate thought is we want to pry into the details? We want to see the nitty-gritty. We want to know what Noah did. Truth be told, we are often far more like Ham than Shem or Japheth. The story is there to say, be like Shem. Be like Japheth. They act honorably by trying to cover the sinfulness of their dad. And I have to say a word of balance here. We're not talking about ignoring sinfulness. They're not trying to hide it as if they want their dad to just keep on doing it. If that were the case, then this story would probably not even be in Scripture at all. We are to learn from the story that even the best heroes of our godly heritage were fallen men. Think about that when you think about our American heroes that were strongly Christian. They too were godly and yet fallen. Knowing that they are fallen is important. Knowing the gory details of their fallenness is not. And when we want to know those details, I believe it tells us more about our own wickedness than it does theirs. Certainly God exposes the evil of our hearts, but we should not take pleasure in flaunting and and exposing to everyone the sins of others. 
Galatians 6.1 tells us the proper attitude. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Ham looks at the sin of his dad and uses it to puff himself up. Ha <laughs> ha, dad, you're not so great. I'm just like you. Shem and Japheth understand their own fallenness and seek to restore the honor of their father. And I ask us all, myself included, if there's a message that has really struck me, it's this one. Which way do you react to the sins of others? particularly those who are in the church. I just got to tell you. That's, that's, if, if you just get that part of this message, you'll be doing great. But now we need to understand that the attitudes and behaviors of our ancestors influence those who come after them. Noah wakes up and he learns of all that has transpired and he pronounces both a curse and a blessing. Now again, you have to remember that Noah is the one whom God has made an everlasting covenant with. He's what we would call the covenant head. He is not simply an individual spouting off anger. The voice of God is being pronounced through him. God's sovereign will is declared through Noah, and he is speaking prophetically. That means that what he says will come true, and it does. To the Israelites of Moses' day, they could visibly see the wickedness of the Canaanites before them, and much of that wickedness finds its source in the attitudes and actions of Ham. And even so much so that when they go in under Joshua to conquer the Canaanites, it is the working out of God's sovereign curse upon the Canaanites when they do that. Now, if hearing that raises all sorts of questions in your heart, you're in good company. A couple questions that I had. Why does God... God, why does Noah curse Canaan, the youngest of Ham's four sons, and not Ham himself? That doesn't seem very just. Does the curse in some way nullify free will? And it may sound like a cop-out to many of you, and we can talk about it more, but I believe the only way you can understand this is that God is sovereignly working out his will. Technically speaking, all men remain under the curse of the fall. It's not just Hamites, it's everyone. We're all under the curse. And if you follow Israelites' history, you're going to find out that Israel becomes just as wicked as the Canaanites, if not worse. And it's not just the questions of the Canaanites, like what's going on with the Canaanites, it's also the questions of Shem and Japheth. Now, you may not have noticed this in the text. I, I don't know why I've read this text many times, but, but it, it certainly hit me in verse 26. God calls himself the God of Shem. Well, that's really nice, great. 
which of the two brothers carried the, the curtain the, back into the tent? Was it just Shem? Why is he not the God of Shem and Japheth? I don't know. Except by the sovereign grace of God. Could it be that God wants us to know that Shem did not earn this honor, but that it was given to him by God's, God, God's sovereign grace? It is certainly better to have your tent enlarged than to be made a servant like the Canaanites, but Japheth gets the shorter end of the stick here. And what does it mean that Japheth would dwell in the tents of Shem? In some sense, it has to refer to the Gentiles coming to know Christ. But it didn't do a whole lot for Japheth and his descendants right away. And this is where I want you to take out your insert. You'll not find too often that I don't read a passage of Scripture that I preach on but I'm going to do you guys the favor of not having to listen to all these names butchered by me. You want to see this? Your insert has two sides. We're not going to spend time on the the nice colorful side. I know you want to do that. You can look at that later on the back, but just on this front, okay? This is the family tree of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And I want you to see how this tree is an outworking of Noah's cursing and blessing. I'm only going to take note of some of the names, so you might, if you want to circle the ones that I do, that's fine. I, I actually can't comment on every name because I'm not, I haven't studied it that well, I guess. But I'm going to give you some, and you're going to get a, a smattering of what is happening here. You need to know that some of these names are individuals, Some of them are cities and regions, like geographical, and some of them are just people groups. You also need to know that depending on how you count them, there are 70 or 71 different people groups listed here, and that number is significant, and it represents the entirety of Noah's descendants. It's not all of them, but it is a representative of the entirety of Noah's descendants. And it's not by accident that when Jacob takes his family down to Egypt, that there's about 70 at that point. And then in Jesus, when he sends out the 72, this is all, or some translations, uh, 70. That's all dealing with this, it's going to the nations, it's going to the earth, it's everyone. Okay, so that's very important in this um, text. But let's begin with Japheth's children. Japheth has the most kids, but his family tree is really short. Notice that of his children are Magog, Meshech, and Tubal. Now these are not children that are very important in Moses' day, but they will become important later on in Israel's history. So you don't have to turn there, but Ezekiel 38 says, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. So here we are, all the way back in Japheth's line, we begin to see Magog and Meshech and Tubal. Also, Magog is mentioned in Revelation, so you want to go there, you can follow it throughout history. Madai are the Medes. Later on, you hear of the Medes. Uh, Havan, J-A-V-A-N, they are the Greeks. Okay? 
Tarshish is mentioned. It is the port on the western end of the Mediterranean Sea. It's the place where Jonah goes when he's trying to run from God. Okay? When God called him to go to Nineveh, and we'll learn about Nineveh here in a minute. Then look at Cush. You see Cush there? He begins the descendants of Ham. And Cush is Ethiopia. Okay? But look following down further. We see from him come a man named Nimrod. Nimrod is called a mighty hunter. But more importantly, he establishes two of the worst kingdoms ever. Assyria and Babylonia. And if you know anything about those those places, they become the ones, Assyria destroys the northern kingdom of Israel and Babylon destroys the southern kingdom. Okay, so here they are, right there. Moving over, you see Egypt, or in some translations, Mitzrayim, and you also see the dreaded Philistines in that line. Put is not really mentioned much, but then you go to Canaan. And Canaan, you get a long line of some 11 different tribes mentioned, and that is purposeful because those are the ones that the Israelites will go in and conquer under Joshua. The borders of Canaan are also listed. Why would the borders be important? Not borders of any other place, but the borders of of Canaan are listed because those are going to become the borders of the promised land. Now we go to, well, just let me make a statement. You can see when you look at the, the, the descendants of Ham, all of Israel's worst enemies are under Ham. That's not accidental. Now we come to the family of Shem. The first thing to notice is that even though God calls himself the God of Shem, not all of Shem's descendants merit attention. Elam, Asher, Lud, not even just whoo, right past. They are very important people to God's sight, but they are not important for the story. So they leave them out. Look at uh, Aram's son has uh, Uz. And all you need to know about Uz is that is the place where Job comes from. Fascinating, isn't it? You wonder where Job comes from? There he is. He's a descendant of Shem. The only one uh, son of Shem that it really matters is Arpachshad, right? And I couldn't even have told you his name uh, until I wrote this down uh, today. Arpachshad has uh, a son, Shelah, and then from him, Eber. Eber is probably where we get the, the name Hebrew, okay? And then in Eber's sons, you have Peleg and Joktan. And Joktan is given a whole list of people underneath him. Peleg is not given any because Peleg is the line through which Abraham will come. And that'll be given next week. Okay? But during Peleg's time, his name means division. It's very likely that the story of the Tower of Babel actually occurs in Peleg's time. And I hope you just see from this that these family trees 
are not just there as a boring list of names. They're there to help you to understand how you fit into the larger context of the story. Your ancestry, the place where you live, the special heritage that has been passed down to you is not random. God is sovereignly working through it all. And I actually believe that in Acts 17, Paul probably has in mind this passage when he writes these words. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is not actually far from each one of us. Israel is not a random people. They are one family of of an entire world that is owned and governed and established by God himself. The fact that Israel will become her own people does not have to do with how great she is. It has to do with how great God's sovereign election of her is. At the same time, it is not wrong to enjoy and to appreciate the relative obedience of our lives and how those mysteriously form a heritage for those who come after us. Do you see the the balance of that tension? And that brings us to the Tower of Babel. And we'll go through this very quickly. You see, the problem is this. God had said to his people, he said, go spread out to all the earth. I want you to fill the earth. And in their wickedness, they say, no, we're all just going to stick together. And the question is this. God's plan is to have a people all over this earth that love him and follow him and obey him. Will man's rebellion prevent God from carrying out his plan? And you know the answer to that. No, it will not. God will carry out his plan of redemption. He will do his work regardless of your disobedience or obedience. You are a water course in his hand. He just moves the banks of the river and you go where he wants you to go. And that's exactly the story of Genesis 11, 1 through 4. Now the whole earth had one language. And the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, that's near Babylon, and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Men are at odds with God's plan, not just the Hamites. The Japhethites and the Shemites are all at odds with God's plan. This city is built for their own security. They are seeking to build a name for themselves, meaning they want to be like God. And I'm telling you, One of the most important lessons you need to learn from your life is that God is up there and you are not him. 
You are not God. Notice the story. There are two important things that are happening. One is that man thinks that by his works he can achieve divinity. And God says, what does God do? I think he tells a joke. God laughs at our attempts to be divine. Look at verse 5. Here man is creating this wonderful uh, tower, ziggurat, whatever you want to say. He's building this tower. He thinks he's going to be this greatness. We're going to reach up to God. And what does God have to do in order to see the tower? You see it in the text, verse 5? He's got to come down. This is meant to be humorous. You guys don't get Jewish humor, so you don't see it, but that's all right. Picture a group of ants building an anthill. And if you could talk to them, you say, what are you guys doing? You're looking down at them. They're building the anthill. I know there's some places where anthills are big. But anyway, just picture a small anthill. They're building the anthill. You look down. What are you guys doing? They say, we're building a tower to the moon. And you say, you are? As you look down. This is humorous. God doesn't have to come down to see this. Moses wants you to say, oh, yeah, God's like, you're right. You're getting up to me. But the second thing is even more uh, telling. Verse 6. Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is the only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing they propose to do now will be impossible to them. You would almost think that this verse is contrary to verse 5, but it's not. While we can never attain divinity, do you know what we can do? Because you're made in the image of God, because you have incredible capacity in the image of God, you can do some pretty amazing things. Can't attain attain divinity, can't gain salvation, but you can be pretty impressive. And you know what happens when we get to be really impressed? We get impressed with ourselves. Is that not the case of our present world? We are absolutely impressed with man and very not impressed with God. Sports, technology, military might, medicine, entertainment, music, I don't care what it is, we are enthralled with what humans can do and we think God is boring. God has to come down to look at us. You see, God knows this. He spreads, he he confuses the language of people so that they wouldn't achieve as much as they could. Not because he's threatened by them, but because he doesn't want them to be so impressed with themselves that they never come to him. You see, God has determined from the beginning, way back in Genesis 3.15, I'm going to have a people for myself who are scattered throughout the earth, who love me and do my will and actually trust in me instead of just being consumed with their own name. Do you see this in the text? This is what's happening with the Tower of Babel. God is sovereignly moving his plan of redemption forward. He's reducing man's ability to impress himself, and he's also scattering them all over the earth so he can go then and redeem them later on.
outside, kind of the far end of the meaning, but important. Those who think that world government is the answer to present day's pressing problems of war and peace should stop and ponder seriously the lesson of the Tower of Babel. I don't want one world government until Jesus sets it up. He wants multiple kingdoms. At the same time, the church is one church. One worldwide church. There's not multiple churches that Jesus has. There's one church from multiple places. This is why when God gives the gift of tongues at Pentecost, it is in some way a reversal of what occurred at the Tower of Babel. It is God saying, yes, my church will be spread over the whole earth. Three conclusions. Value heritage. Your heritage fits into God's sovereign plan. I don't care what problems our past leaders had. I don't care what problems our ones do now. You have been given the gospel in this land. You should cherish it. Kids, if you've been brought up in a Christian home, be thankful. Don't just love to point out in your heart even the failures of your parents. They have led you to Christ. You can be truthful. You can acknowledge their their sinfulness. They're not perfect. Guess what? Noah wasn't either. But value the heritage that you have been given. And even as Americans, value that. Enjoy the heritage that we have been given. But, understand secondly, that salvation is always a work of God's sovereign grace. Nobody gets into heaven because of their heritage. God calls people to himself sovereignly, individually. You know, he actually calls Hamites to himself. Rahab was a Hamite. How many of the Egyptians went with Israel when they left Egypt? God calls people even from ungodly heritages to himself. Thirdly, there's a lot of ways I can say this, Maybe the easiest way is to just say, be humble. Be humble. Another way to say it would be cover the sin of those around you. It's not by accident that Peter says, love covers a multitude of sins. Protect the dignity of those around you. Quit exposing and loving to flaunt the evil of others. We do not ascend to God. God comes down to us and we receive him by faith. You're not better than the Hamites. 
Jesus Christ is the only heritage that truly matters. Be concerned with his name and not your own. You bear the name of Christ, the only perfect one. So celebrate your American heritage tomorrow, but cherish the heritage that you have in Jesus Christ. Not just on the 4th of July, but every day, and particularly every Lord's Day. Amen.